Well, good morning again. Uh, as you wish and I wish, we would all love to be together, right? We'd love to be worshiping together in the sanctuary as the people of God. We can't do that yet. The day's going to come when we can. But until then, uh, we're praying that God will use this medium to help us worship together and grow in our relationship with Christ. We're going to continue our series in Mark. Today we're in the book of Mark chapter 10. We'll start reading in verse 35. Follow along with me, would you? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Let's pray. Father, Lord, as we open up your word on this morning, we pray that you would be glorified in it. We pray, Father, that you would use this preaching of your word to transform our souls. Uh, Father, I pray that you would use this broken vessel to pour out good, clean, living water. And Father, if I preach anything that is not from you, I pray that you would close the ears of the hearers, that they would only hear what is from our Lord God for your glory and for the good of your people. In the name of Jesus, our Redeemer, we pray. Amen. Amen. Listen, the, uh, the text that we've just read can be divided into, into two sections. Uh, we're going to focus on the second. Um, the first, uh, we want to look back at just a bit. It's where Jesus, in, in verse 32 to, to 34, uh, he's, he's taking them up to Jerusalem. In fact, the text there says that they're going up to Jerusalem. They're moving up towards the cross of Jesus Christ. We're moving rapidly there, okay? So even as Jesus is going, he's also pulling his disciples along with him. He's pulling uh, others uh, in the region, Romans, uh, Jews, along with him. And he's pulling us along with him up to Jerusalem towards the cross of Jesus Christ. Look, the, the crucifixion and resurrection, and the celebration of that for us is not just something in a book, but something that, that we kind of build our year around as Christians. I love Christmas, don't get me wrong, I love Christmas, but Easter, all year long I look forward towards this time when we worship our risen Lord together. My heart's wrapped up even now with the reality of Jesus, his sacrificial love, his death, and his resurrection. As Jesus is moving closer we're reminded of many things one of the main things we're reminded of though 
is that no one else can pay for the sins of others except Jesus. Jesus does what no one else can can do. He takes his innocence to the cross and he takes upon himself the wrath of God, the wrath of God that is due to us. Now, it's not that we're not going to suffer as he has suffered. There will be some suffering for the believer in Christ. I mean, he makes that point here, and he makes it many other places in Scripture. If you're going to follow Christ, there will be suffering. But we're not going to suffer in the same way. Elizabeth Elliot, in her book, Suffering is Never for Nothing, defines suffering as having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. Having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. Now, if someone besides Elizabeth Elliot were to uh, give us that short little saying, I might push back a little bit, but Elizabeth Elliot knows what suffering's all about. That sort of thing, having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have, covers just about everything. Think about it. If you have a flat tire, uh, that's a bit of suffering, isn't it? Now, it's not the same level of suffering as having uh, your husband killed by Indians as he's trying to take the gospel to them, as Elizabeth Elliot experienced, but it's still suffering. We're in a place in, in our country and in the world right now where, where we're encountering a different sort of suffering. Before this coronavirus thing is over with, we will all have experienced um, suffering in different ways. It is possible, maybe probable, that we will all know someone that has had coronavirus Uh, that has even died from it. Ed Stetzer, in an article last week, mentioned that this coronavirus pandemic uh, will have a greater impact on us as a nation than even 9-11. That will be perhaps the defining event of our lifetime. I think he's right. So we don't want to take it, we don't want to take it lightly. We want to lean into the suffering there with Jesus. Elizabeth Elliot goes on though and she says, the deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. And the greatest gift in my life have entailed the greatest suffering. She goes on, and let's remember If we don't ever want to suffer, we must be very careful to never love anything or anybody. If we don't ever want to suffer, we must be very careful to never love anything or anybody. So if we're going to follow Jesus Christ in the greatest commandment, to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second that is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself, we're going to suffer. But that's not a bad thing. As we're entering into this third week of of COVID-19, we're facing its impact, right? The impact is physical as we're separated from each other and also as some have gotten sick and some have died. It's financial. Uh, Many are hurting financially. Some have lost their work. Uh, Some that were paycheck to paycheck have lost their work and no hopes of having it recovered. It's social. Uh, folks like me that are extroverts are unable to, to gather with other people in community. It's, 
it's social and spiritual and that the body of Christ is unable to get together. Now, we, we've been very creative. Listen, the tech team here at EP is amazing in the way they have helped us to use Zoom and Microsoft Meeting and Google Hangout and other venues to get together uh, computer screen to computer screen or iPhone to iPhone. But that still isn't the same as putting arms around each other and praying with each other face to face. So there's a social slash spiritual aspect that we're missing as a church and, and as, even as a nation. It's emotional, financial, social, spiritual, physical. The impact is there. How will we respond to this? Well, the second part of this passage, the part we just read, helps us to focus on that. Uh, let's, let's dive into it. Uh, Jesus is taking the, the, the team towards Jerusalem, up towards the cross of Christ. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come up to him and they ask him a question. They, they kind of, it's, it's almost manipulative. Now, in Matthew 20, you see that their mom, the wife of Zebedee, is involved in it also. Mark leaves that detail out. And he puts the, the blame totally on the shoulders of James and John. Uh, their, their question is kind of manipulative. Lord, do whatever we ask. Will you, will you give us this? Can we ask you a question? And kind of sets him up. And, um, but then they ask, can one of us sit on your left hand and one on your, your right hand when you come to rule? In other words, they're saying, we, we've heard that you're going to suffer. We've heard that. We believe you now. After the third time, we believe you. Um, but you've also said three times you're going to rise again. So we believe that. And so when you rise again and you're ruling all the world, especially when you've, you know, flattened Rome and we're, we're ruling over Rome, we want to be on the left and right and we want to rule with you. Um, it's a self-centered question on their part. It's, a, it's the assumption that, that they are able to, to rule in that way. And we know that John, at least, was very young. Uh, they're able to rule. And they're assuming that they're more able to rule than the other ten disciples. Uh, they're able to rule better than all of the other uh, gazillions of people that are around the world. So they're making a lot of um, really self-centered, um, narcissistic, maybe naive um, assumptions. It's, it is, at the very least, self-centered. Uh, Jesus' question to them, have you noticed how Jesus always responds with a question? He doesn't just launch right into teaching. He responds with a question, and then he listens right? So the question to them is, are you able to drink from this cup? Now, I, I, he's wanting them to think about that a little while. I don't know how much thinking they did, because they come right back with, a, with an answer, yes, we can drink from the cup, which tells me that they don't have a clue what the cup is. And Jesus responds, well, you're going to drink from the cup. It's going to be a different way of drinking, but you're going to drink from the cup. You're not able to drink from the cup that that Jesus is really going to be drinking from the cup of glory, the cup of power, the cup of holiness, the cup of fame, the cup of the pressure, the cup of a crucifixion, the cup of paying for the sins of the whole world. Can they drink from that cup? No, they can't. I can't. You can't. We can't even drink from the, the cup of, of, of the pressure of, of the world and the pressure of our own idols and the pressure of our own sin on our own. We have to have Jesus even for that. James and John, Peter, the other disciples, you and I even, uh, might be quick to think, oh, it's easy to follow Jesus. Or maybe we might even think, well, it's easy to die for Jesus. 
I remember being in college, I, uh, I quickly thought, yes, I, can, I would be willing to deny myself and die for Christ. Um, you know, college students are quite full of zeal and uh, quite impetuous and able to take on the world, take on hell with a bucket of water, so to speak. Uh, I realized before too long, though, that dying for Christ might be easier than living for Christ. See, dying for Christ is a, moment, a momentary thing. Living for Christ is different. Living for Christ is very daily. It's moment by moment even. It's moment by moment denying self and laying down our idols and taking up the cross and following Jesus. It's making every decision of every day and every single relationship according to Christ instead of our own idolatries. Living for Jesus is, is much harder. It means that we have to lay down our own self-righteousness, our own right to pass judgment, to throw stones, our own right to choose who we will love, who we will care for, and under what sicknesses we will go and care for them. Will we care for them if they have a fever? Will we care for them if they've tested positive for coronavirus. How will we care for people? When we follow Christ, we begin to lay down our right to choose who we will love. Who we will love. It means laying down our right to bitterness, uh, our right to wrath, laying down our right to glory, our, light, our right to a, a life of ease. Um, laying down our lives means that we're laying down our our right to comfort and safety as we follow Jesus towards the throne. While many and perhaps most Christians make this self-centered cup of leadership their preferred cup, it isn't the cup of a self-centered, or it isn't the cup of a a Christ-centered life. A Christ-centered life is looking towards Jesus and following where he goes. And even Jesus doesn't go towards a self-centered life life does he i mean he gets the glory but philippians makes it too that that while being in in very like manner god he he didn't consider being like god something to be grasped but laid down his very life even to the point of death we're going to sit with christ Uh, maybe not on the left hand or the right hand that's that's not ours to even hope for or christ to give he's it's the father's to give but we're going to sit with Christ. If you're a believer in Christ, you will sit with him. But when you sit with him, it will be around the, the banquet table in heaven. It will be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. I long for that table. I, I, long, I long to be at a table with Jesus at the head and to see Jesus take a cup. And it's the cup of the wedding supper of the Lamb, the cup of the feast and to have him pass that cup around. I long to sit there with you. My friends, the world tells us to long for many things. That's why people pay millions of dollars just to put together a 30-second or a one-minute Super Bowl commercial because they want to teach you to long for many things. Above all else, long for Jesus. Above all else. That is a longing that will be satisfied satisfied to the uttermost above all else long for jesus when we when we long for jesus 
when we long for the giver more than the, the gift, when we long for the omnipotent one more than we long for the power, when we, love for the, when we long for the glorious one more than we long for the glory, then we're going to see the idols of self-centeredness melt away like snow on a sunny August day. It all melts away under our longing for Jesus Christ. A Christ-centered life, a Christ-centered leadership is just that. It's centered on Christ. He is the only one that is always right, always pure, always pure in his motives, always pure in his love, always sacrificial in his love. Jesus is love. Not just gives love, he is love. He is hope. He doesn't just provide hope. He is, he is our hope. Jesus is the one that is the, the very definition of humility. It's not just that he provides it, but he is humility and hope and love and grace and mercy. And so when we long for him, we have him, and we get to, to walk into all of that. Listen, you don't know me well yet. I look forward to the years of getting to know each other better. Um, my wife blows me away. To this day, when she walks into a room after 30-something years, she still leaves me speechless, literally. Um, she, even as I think about her, I, just, I, I lose my train of thought. But I know that as, as wonderful as she is, she doesn't love me like Jesus does. And as much as I love Sandy, I don't love her like Jesus does. Only Jesus has that kind of a love and can satisfy that longing in you and me. He can do what no one else can do or is designed to do. That takes us to our second cup of, of leadership. It's a suffering leadership. And this is a kind of, le of, of leadership, the, the kind of cup that James and John would indeed drink from. They had no idea what it would mean to drink from that cup, but it wouldn't be long before they would find out. As they traveled up towards Jerusalem, they would eventually end up in the Garden of Gethsemane a few days later with Jesus, where, where Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off somebody's ear. Jesus is arrested and he's moved into the courtyard and he's beaten and he's bloody. He's got a crown of thorns put upon his head. Uh, he's whipped. The whip would have been uh, what we might call a cat of nine tails. It would have been a, a whip that had little bits of metal and glass kind of woven into the end of it. So that when the um, assailant would whip the man's back, the ends of the whip would wrap around his ribs. And as the whip was pulled back, it would rip the flesh from his body. James and John have no idea what they're in for. Some of the disciples experienced that type of suffering later on. We know that Paul, in fact, experienced the 40 lashes minus one five times. He didn't experience all 40 of them because he was a Roman citizen. It was illegal to give a Roman citizen 40 lashes. So he got 39, but he got them five times. That's enough to kill somebody. These guys are going to have suffering James would be one of the first martyrs. John uh, would be the only disciple that would not lose his life because of his faith, but he would have boiling oil poured on him. Not sure which is worse. And then be exiled to the island of, of Patmos. To engage in the life of others means that we're going to encounter suffering in some ways. If we're going to engage in the life of others during crisis, it will at times definitely bring 
suffering. But listen, if we're going to, if we're going to love people, we're going to risk suffering. We're going to risk getting hurt. We're going to risk a loss of safety. But we have to dive into that and love anyway. A church planter once asked me, I've coached a lot of church planters over the years, and one of them came to me maybe, maybe a decade ago, um, and he said, okay, I went to this church planter training conference, and one of the things they said was that within five years, I will have lost all of my best friends. How can I avoid that? And, and I looked at him uh, with compassion, and I said, you can't. If you're going to love people, you're going to suffer. And sometimes even your best friends are going to walk away from you, especially in ministry. It happens. If you're going to love, you're going to be hurt. But you have to engage. You have to dive in and follow Jesus into the fray of loving people. Such love doesn't mean what a friend of mine calls um, sloppy agape. A sloppy agape is that that situation where because you love someone, no discipline happens. Or you, because you love someone, you just pour some weird kind of unbiblical grace on them and, um, and there are no, never any consequences for actions. Uh, that's sloppy agape. Uh, a father disciplines those that he loves, right? So we know that. If he doesn't love them, he doesn't discipline them. Because he does love he does, he does discipline. But such love of Jesus Christ and following Jesus means that we do get to lay down, we do have to lay down our sin-soaked grudges. We have to lay down our bitterness. We have to lay down our prejudices. We have to take those things, those grudges and bitternesses and, and prejudices and lay them in the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ. That's why he went to the cross, to take those things. Why would we keep what Jesus died to take away from us? We laid those down just as Jesus took those sins that I have committed and you have committed, my own grudges and bitternesses and prejudices, and he took those away from us and he took those and he said, bring them to me, give them to me, take my yoke upon you, let me have your sin, and he took them. So we lay them down and we don't get to take them up again. If we're going to love people, it means we're going to lay down those things that keep us from loving others. It brings us to our third cup. Of, of leadership here. And I have to mention that when we talk about these, these forms of leadership here and with James and John and Jesus, um, he isn't talking just about leaders. Everybody leads. He's talking about everyone that's a follower of Christ. Listen, everyone leads. Everyone leads. Everyone. Um, you, you show me someone that, that doesn't know how to follow, and I'll show you someone that's a poor leader, but he's still a leader. Great leaders are also great followers. James and John need to learn how to be great followers of Jesus. All of us do. So this isn't just for those that are disciples or those that are in positions of formal leadership. It is, it is for all of us. Jesus calls all the 12 disciples to him. He sees a, a crisis brewing. You've got two uh, uh, disciples over here. You've got the other 10 over here. The other 10 are indignant. Go figure. Why wouldn't they be, right? Um, the, the two just basically said to, to Jesus, hey, can I have all the glory? And the other ten are indignant. So Jesus calls them all to him, and he teaches them, them all. He speaks to them first about Gentile or, or secular leadership. He says, look, the Gentiles, the way they lead is they lord it over others, and they, they have a hard authority over others. It's not a biblical authority. It will not be this way with you. 
You can't lead that way. You have to lead in a Christ-like way, a, a biblical way, with humility, to see others more important than ourselves, to, to learn to engage and live incarnationally as Jesus does. A Gentile leader that would be lording over with authority is either going to disengage from everyone and lead from a distance so that he doesn't have to, to risk pain, suffering, sickness. He's either going to do that, or if he does engage, will do it in such a way that he's able to manipulate and control everyone else for his own glory. That's a Gentile, secular way of leadership, but it's not a Christ way of leadership. He calls us to something different, something better. Um, but then he kicks it up a notch after he speaks to them of the Gentile leadership. He says, whoever would desire to be great must be your servant. Does that make sense? Well, no, it doesn't make sense at all. Whoever would desire to be great must be a servant. That's hard to get on board with. What is a servant? A servant is still paid. Still a servant, taking orders from someone else, serving someone else, but he's paid for it. A slave, a slave is different. A slave is owned. And that's when Jesus kicks it up another notch. So whoever will be great must be a servant. Whoever will be first, though, he says, must be a slave. In fact, he must be the slave of all. Now he's kicked it to a real deep, hard place. Jesus goes here later on in the book of John, in John chapter 13, when he kneels before the, uh, the, the, the disciples, and he takes off his outer garment, he gets a basin of water, and he, he begins to wash the dirt and the dust, uh, the dung, the mess off of the feet of his disciples. And Peter says, no, you can't do that to me. And Jesus says there, listen, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. It's sweet Peter. Peter reminds me of a toddler sometimes. Well, wash all of me then, Jesus. Give me all. Peter didn't get it. It's a different kind of washing. It's a washing with the blood of Jesus Christ that's coming. But Jesus shows him what a, what a slave does. A slave serves even to the point of getting messy and nasty and dirty even to the point of going beyond your job description, beyond what your role might be in any relationship. Um, it means that you have to risk pain, risk being uncomfortable. But then he kicks it up to the ultimate place. The ultimate. He, the very greatest and the very first is the Son of Man. He said the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So there's First servant, you're gonna be, if you're going to be great, servant, first slave, if you're going to be the son of man, you're going to give your life as a ransom for many. How do we do that? Now, ransom is a way of paying for someone's life to be purchased back from, from slavery or from kidnapping or something of that nature. It was common in war that if a relative was captured, then the capturing army would would contact that person's family or extended family and that family could buy him back or buy her back from from that capture so you might buy an individual back you might buy a few individuals back jesus it says here is giving his life as a ransom for for many we see a picture of that back in hosea in chapter three hosea is a a, a picture of jesus christ okay hosea was told to marry a prostitute gomer uh, you can read it later on and he does, and then she leaves, and he brings her back, and she leaves, and he takes her back, and she leaves, and he has 
he has three, three children um, from, by, by Hosea or by Gomer. Uh, but then she leaves again. And what we see in the context of this passage is that she had had many lovers after that. She had, she had made the rounds and she had passed down, been passed down from one to another to another to another until she's finally so used up that the last lover that she has puts her on the auction block of slavery to be sold as a slave. She's worth nothing more than that. And Hosea, who had experienced all that pain, goes to the auction. And he bids on his wayward wife. And he pays for her 15 shekels of silver and some barley. 15 shekels of silver would be about six or seven ounces of silver. Gomer would have been placed up there um, with other slaves on the auction block. She would have been naked. She would have had some water poured over her to wash away the stench. And her husband in front of everybody, not worried about his reputation, just worried about his love for his bride. He goes to this woman who has no worth except what he is willing to pay. And he pays a high price for her. And no doubt the first thing he did was take off his own outer coat and wrap it around Gomer to cover her own sin and nakedness. Much the way Jesus gives us his robe of righteousness to cover our our unrighteousness. She's worth nothing except what Hosea is willing to pay. We are worth nothing except what Jesus is willing to pay. We're all broken, wretched, and worthless, except that Jesus lays down his life, that we might have life forever. Listen, this ransom, this exchange, means that we don't have to drink from the cup of God's wrath. We drink from the cup of suffering, but we're not going to drink from the cup of God's wrath. Jesus drank that cup dry. It's gone. It's done. You can turn that wine glass upside down and nothing's coming out because Jesus has already drank it all. It's gone. We're not going to drink from that cup at all. But it does mean, it means, it means this also. It means that we can, we can follow Jesus and suffer well. That's the other cup, you see. James and John drank from that cup of suffering. Because Jesus has forgiven us, he has also poured out his grace and his mercy upon us. Those that are believers in Jesus Christ have the Holy Spirit in them. If you're a believer, you don't get the cup of God's wrath. You do have the Holy Spirit. If you're not a believer, my friends, listen. If you're not a believer, you do have the cup of God's wrath coming your way. And you cannot bear up under that. And you don't have the Holy Spirit. I implore you to long for Christ. If we have the Holy Spirit in us as He has poured out and drenched us in His grace, then we have the desire and the ability to live as Christ calls us to live. To voluntarily drink from this cup of suffering as Jesus did means that we're going to live and love and lead as a servant, even to the point of looking like a slave if that's what it takes. A slave does a bidding of their owner, remember? That's in contrast to the ways of the world in which we live. It means that we're going to give up freely. It means we're going to live freely. 
for Christ and for others. It means we're going to live generously. We're going to live out of our own heart of love from Christ, laying down our, our rights and our time and sometimes our, even our safety. Practically, how can you do that? Well, I want to encourage you to volunteer in ways, whatever way you can. Be safe, be wise, but volunteer. Uh, EP has put together some great means of, of, of serving others during this crisis. Um, I watch the staff here, and I'm amazed at the way they have energetically and thoroughly loved our church and our community. So volunteer to help out with that. Contact the office, contact Tom Bell, uh, Lori Nelson, contact Nathan Boyette. Uh, give us a call, and, and we can help help you plug in in that way. Um, find a way to, to be a part of Renew Groups. Uh, Zoom, Microsoft uh, Teams, things like that. If you don't know how to do that, then give one of us a call and we'll help walk you through um, that. And keep giving, keep giving uh, financially. Uh, your, your staff, I promise you, is, is working more hours than normal. They're so creative, so innovative, um, doing things that is far outside of the norm and, and doing it well. So give as an act of worship. Give because it's still needed because the church is working harder. You can do it through your EP app. You can do it online. You can do it through your bank's giving uh, system, whatever. Next, check on your neighbors and friends. And don't just check on them, but love on them. Invite them to worship. Invite them to be a part of your new group. They're bored and going stir-crazy just like you are. So invite them to be a part of that. Finally, let me ask you to pray. Prayer is hard work, but pray for people. Uh, pray for the people in, in the community. Pray for the people in the city. Uh, pray for your friends, your neighbors. Pray for the people in the church. Uh, go through the, your directory and pray for people. Do the hard work of that. Listen, Easter is just 14 days away, friends. 14 days away, and we're going to get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. For many of us, for most of us, our hope, our hope is short-sighted. We're looking to get out of a crisis. We're looking to, to win this battle. We're, we're looking to have this relationship made better. Let's, let's put our hope on something more eternal. In 14 days, we will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where of death is your victory, your sting? It's gone. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. That's gone. That's where I hope our hope rests. It's our lasting hope in Christ alone. We looked at three cups of leadership. Uh, Self-centered leadership, be done with it. Suffering leadership, lean into it. The final cup of, of Christ's leadership, that leadership of the cross, uh, we, ha we get to take part in that because of Jesus Christ. There's, a, there's one more thing. Jesus only has two cups. He has a cup of God's wrath, and he has the wedding cup. Both of those come together in the Passover feast when we take communion. Both of those happen. We don't ever drink from the wrath part of that if you're a believer in Christ. But my friends, we get to drink from the wedding part of that. And the day is going to come when we're going to sit around that banquet table and we're going to sip. <laughs> we're going to guzzle from the wedding cup of the Lamb of God. Long for Jesus. Above all else, long for Jesus. Let me encourage you that as it comes, as suffering comes, lean into the suffering by leaning into Jesus Christ. Amen. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for letting us come before you. Uh, thank you for letting us have your word. 
Lord, what a privilege that you give us your word. Lord, I pray for our congregation. I pray for those that are in our city. Lord, that you would protect us. And Lord, that you would help us to love each other well. To love each other well through the midst of this pandemic. Lord, you're greater than any pandemic. You're here in the beginning. You're here in the end. You're before the beginning. Lord, we have eternal life because of you. Lord, in the midst of this very brief struggle, which is not worthy to be compared with the glory that we will see when we see you, Jesus Christ, in the midst of this, help us to love each other well. And Lord, if there's anyone that's not a believer in you yet that's hearing this, I pray that even now they would turn to you and they would lay down their life before you, our Lord. And they would say, Jesus, I want you. I want to long for you. I want a relationship with you. I want eternal life. Lord, I repent and turn from my son. Help me to walk in new life, new obedience with you, Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.